linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And if you've been wondering why this podcast is several days late in coming out this week, well, uh, I think I'm going to blame it on Neil Kramer. You see, uh, last week, my wife and I attended one of Neil and KMO's couch surfing salons, I guess they call them, and uh, I heard Neil say that every so often he takes what he calls a technology break. No computer, no internet, no MP3 player, no TV, nothing electronic. So uh, I tried that this week and uh, found it to be a wonderful way to relax. You see, we've been uh, having some rainy weather here all week, and uh, in fact, I just heard that our county has uh, now received almost one half of our annual rainfall, which is about what Tampa, Florida gets during an average summer week of afternoon thunderstorms. But rain is uh, really rare here in Southern California, and so I enjoyed curling up with a good book in front of our electric heater and uh, listening to the rain as I read. And uh, now I'm looking forward to doing this some more, uh, without the rain, of course. The only problem I've discovered with uh, disconnecting from the net was that after two or three days offline, it's really difficult to come back to sitting in front of a computer. Uh, It's as hard as it was for me after returning from a week's vacation in Mexico or somewhere. So uh, that's why I'm blaming Neil for my newfound sloth. But, uh, (laughs) Neil, you're also to be thanked for slowing me down a bit. However, in the interim, some of our fellow saloners didn't slow down. Instead, they sent donations to uh, help offset some of the expenses here, and uh, these fine saloners are Michael R., Craig A., Colin F., Sam S., Adrian D., Eric C., who, by the way, very thoughtfully sent a donation to Haitian Relief in the name of us all here in the salon, so uh, thank you for including the salon in your generosity, Eric. And we also received a very generous donation from Jeff M., who said, Should have done this a long time ago. You said you were established and solid, so I donated elsewhere. But I'm sure every little bit helps, and for what you have given, I'd like to try to reciprocate. Thank you seems inadequate, but thank you, Jeff. Well, Jeff, Eric, Michael, Craig, Colin, Sam, and Adrian, uh, Well, hey, thank you for your help and support, uh, both now and in the past, because uh, I know some of those wonderful donors have been making contributions for several years now. And although we've never met in person, I feel like we're old friends every time I see your names. So, uh, hey, thanks for being here. And uh, guess what? Our program today is also a gift from some of our fellow saloners. And uh, I first learned about this event through a Facebook email, which uh, read in part... I have been a three-year listener to the podcast and can say that they have truly changed the course of my life. I'm an anthropologist, and because of your podcast and some of the others that it has led me to, I have shifted my focus from basic medical anthropology to the anthropology of psychedelic culture. I am now an anthropologist of the tribe, so to speak. And let me just uh, put in a little aside here to say that, uh, to my knowledge... Dr. Cameron Adams is now the first anthropologist who is uh, focusing on what we all call the tribe. And uh, I wish you the greatest success possible, Cameron. Uh, And his email goes on. My first public and professional foray into this new endeavor was a session my wife and I convened 
at the Third International Conference for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture at the University of Amsterdam, 23 to 26 July 2009. The conference was called Religion, Nature, and Progress, and our session on Friday, 24 July was called From the Shaman's Circle to the Ivory Tower, Progress, Spirituality, and Psychedelic Thinking. We recorded the session, and I wondered if you'd be interested in checking it out for a possible podcast. Also, I thought you may be interested because we are academics working in the field of psychedelics, have given lectures or lecture series on psychedelics and cannabis in university classes, and have one student doing this work and at least one other in the pipeline. You have said some rather accurate but disparaging remarks about university, but I think this is one example of the little steps of change that can happen. Also, the University of Kent has ratified a student psychedelic society. I take no credit. This is the labor of love of one of our very turned-on and sincere students. And this society will begin in earnest at the end of this month. Another little step, but definitely worth keeping an eye on. Thanks for opening up a good road and for doing the good work, Cameron. And uh, Cameron's full title is Dr. Cameron Adams, School of Anthropology and Conservation, University of Kent, Canterbury, England. And the three speakers that we are about to hear, in order of their presentations, are Anna Waldstein, and uh, Anna is a lecturer in medical anthropology and ethnobotany, and convener of the BSc in Medical Anthropology, School of Anthropology and Conservation, University of Kent, Canterbury. Ivan Castleman, and at the time Ivan was a master's student in the SAC UKC, and Cameron Adams, of course, who is an honorary research fellow uh, in the School of Anthropology and Conservation at the University of Kent. Also, I would like to uh, give special thanks to Nexus 112, who helped edit and improve the sound of the recording. So now let's join Anna, Ivan, and Cameron as they take us from the Shaman's Circle to the Ivory Tower. So when we were coming up with this, we were trying to sort of decide what to call it, and, and we all sort of agreed that we like the term psychedelic thinking, um, and just refresh everyone's memory that it means mind manifesting, and that uh, it's very similar to shamanic practices and shamanic thinking techniques of having psychedelic experiences, uh, as we saw from the video, are very, very old and like any sort of evolutionary ideas. Um, we obviously have no direct evidence, but through uh, careful work, um, determined that these techniques are, are very, very old, particularly the use of plants. Um, and so the psychedelic experience, which is very similar um, to mystical experiences, uh, religious experiences, are sort of just the beginning of what we think about as psychedelic thinking. And so the thinking really comes in with taking these experiences and reintegrating them into our lives um, and into our work. And, you know, it's basically very creative, holistic, ecosystems thinking. Um, it's related to movements such as deep ecology and things like that. As far as uh, people have been able to piece together, humans have evolved in 
environments where we had lots of access and exposure to psychedelic substances, and also given the nature of um, pre-human and early human society, would also have um, access to sort of seasonal, sort of seasonal fasting and seasonal fluctuations in diet, um, and you know, sort of experiences of living outdoors, observing the heavens. Um, sitting around fires at night and, and staring into flames and, and basically bringing on these meditative techniques. It's been hypothesized that they induce um, hypnotic states and that certain people who are susceptible to uh, going into trance hypnotic states perhaps provided an advantage in that these states by certain skilled or observant individuals could be used to affect healing. Um, or could be used to come up with solutions to other crises um, in the lives of, of early humans. And so shamanism is argued to be the oldest form of religion, and by shamanism, what I'm, the definition I'm using is basically you know, the sort of animistic religions where you have sort of semi, um, I don't want to say semi-professional, but sort of individuals and societies who were perhaps a bit more tuned in to psychedelic experiences or were you know, just more interested or more observant or more thoughtful about these things than in small-scale societies would sort of arise as shamanic practitioners in whatever folk, sort of flavor of shamanism they've taken from the rest of the world. Now, these techniques continued as, as human... Um, Evolution went on and uh, human populations started to grow and people started to settle down and, and grow crops. Cities grow into larger societies. These techniques continued, although, of course, you know, the, the forms changed. And, and the social hierarchies, you would get, likely, there would likely have been uh, more specialization, people specializing in these techniques, um, perhaps similar to what we see in some shamanic societies today. Um, so things, even state societies like um, ancient Maya, Aztec, um, this is sort of my area of expertise, so I'll, I'll talk about them, um, continue to use shamanic practices. There's evidence of things like mushroom stones um, and other sort of things that look like paraphernalia and, and traces of using psychedelic substances. Um, from the classic Maya period, which was 700-900 AD, and then again later among Aztec societies as well, although we have um, some ethno-historical evidence that it was even more hierarchical and, and perhaps more restricted, those techniques were more restricted to the sort of priestly upper class. And then eventually, in the West, um, things really started to change as social stratification became more intense and you have the development of sort of the church state and um, early Christianity sort of gave way to the more formal church and I don't necessarily name any names um, but the suppression of mysticism psychedelic experience, psychedelic thinking um, began roughly 2,000 years ago in, in the West and you get more intense socioeconomic and socio-spiritual hierarchies. And access to these techniques of thinking um, becomes more and more 
restricted until you get um, society like today where there's state control of consciousness um, as well as state control of production and many other aspects of life. And of course, throughout the history of Western civilization, um, as we're all familiar, it's not necessarily a pretty history. There's conquest, there's colonization, there's slavery, um, and much of that is still continuing on today. However, one thing changed, and that this sort of the state became secularized. Um, and more recently, you get the rise of the corporation, um, and you get globalization, sort of huge world economic system, industrialization, um, basically cocoonment in the built environment, so being cut off, not spending as much time outdoors, not spending time in nature. Um, and then, more recently, you get things like overconsumption and affluenza. And so the long-term outcomes of this, is, as you know, we're all more and more aware, global climate change, global financial crises, pollution, toxicity, disease, uh, violence, and what's looking more and more like an inevitable collapse. You know, all civilizations rise and fall, and it, it looks like this one that's been going on for several thousand years is coming to an end. But what that end will look like and what will, will take its place remains to be seen. Um, and it could be a very catastrophic Malthusian collapse, or it, it could be something a, a bit less uh, devastating. And so I'm, I'm going to now turn it over to Ivan. He's going to talk about contemporary um, psychedelic practices and that sort of thing. And then Cameron will talk a bit more about <laughs> Literature and philosophy and psychedelic thinking, and then we'll have a discussion. My name is Ivan. Um, I'm an ethnographic student at the University of Kent. Um, I'm studying a plant called Salvi divinorum. It's a short acting hallucinogenic um, plant from Mexico. Um, it, it gets mixed in with the, the Mayan. Um, well, they've got three. They've got morning glory and, and mushrooms and, and salvia as well. Salvia has moved into the West. Um, and is used in a, in a very different way. I'm going to show you a video quickly, um, just because this is what I study, <laughs> and so it'll um, sort of wrap it and make, make everything in context. So this is just like a two-minute clip. Um, this is posted on YouTube. This person has just consumed, well, about two minutes ago, consumed salvia, and so and these are, are sort of some of the some of his ramblings as they come up. I don't know, man. It's like it's a trip. It was so beautiful. It's I love her. I was scared, good, huh? but it, it it makes me understand things. Like it guides me to places far away that are not here, or don't exist, or existed before, or will exist. And I'm just walking through it, being part of it, witnessing what's being what's taking place. An event. There you go. Now you're understanding. An event always takes place somewhere else. There, we just gotta be the look. We gotta be sitting down, just enjoy what the villagers are doing, or the Hawaiians are doing, or the Indians in Mexico are doing, or the people, the Indians from North America are doing, indigenous people of all kinds of the world, even blacks. I just feel like there's one unity of all these indigenous people, like living a simple life, telling us that we should live like they do like that simpleness to the earth that's what earth wants earth wants that 
us to be that children again. And now we just ruin it with gasoline and oil. So on on YouTube there's um, 900 videos. If you if you Google Salvi de Norm, there's 900 of these videos, um, and they vary from this, which is a very sort of like um, open-minded, expanded consciousness kind of kind of thing, all the way through to um, kids that don't know what they're doing and they break windows and stuff like that, and 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 a whole range in between. I've watched about a hundred of these videos. Um, and it's sort of uh, part of ongoing research. But um, what I want to talk about today is how, like Anne has talked about the, um, how traditional shamanic practices, um, they're still alive and well today, but the power elite have definitely started to, well, they've, they've essentially eroded a lot of the power out of those, those experiences. But part of the human neural architecture, something, something in there, makes us seek this experience um, and, and redefine it and recreate it and then re-ritualize it um, as, as I think, now this, I'm sort of at the preliminary stage of, of data analysis and stuff like that, but what I'd like to hypothesize is that this, this sort of small phenomenon on YouTube is, is, a, is a type of re-ritualization. Um, so Anna talked about the, the power elite and, and during the, that pass off of power from the church to the monarchy, the monarchy to the state and now from the state to the corporation, we've seen this incredible erosion of, the, of, of psychedelic practices, conscious ex- expansion, all that kind of thought. Um, and, um, and as far as this sort of conference goes with progress and all that kind of stuff, um, if we're really to sort of re-engage in the creative and innovative, innovative power that, that's, that the human mind is capable of, we're going to have to start looking at traditional practices and how they relate to modern practices, but also to start to study these new, these new ideas, these, these new practices that are, are, are emerging basically right under our noses. Um, so... Um, the, the power elite continue to try to erode this kind of stuff, and, and they—I mean—it goes right from killing the shaman um, to um, convincing populations, especially the new media right now. They're—they're they're, they're very good at um, convincing people that they don't need this anymore. They're—they're they're incredibly good at convincing us that we need a new car and that new shirt and um, the toys for our kids or whatever. But. Um, very good at also convincing us that we don't need this type of thinking anymore, this psychedelic thinking. But despite um, the power elite's attempt to eradicate this, it, it, it keeps, it bubbles up. I mean, we saw examples of this in the 60s. Um, the 60s kind of peaked and, and fell off. Um, I have some ideas about that, which I'll talk about at the end. But um, this, uh, the power elite doesn't want us to think like this because it disengages us from consumerism. Um, it connects us with the environment and makes us start to question what's going on with pollution, um, overconsumption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it also makes us question the status quo. And the power league really, um, it, it's important for them, for us to accept the status quo. We want to vote and we want to work and we want to have a beer after work and go to bed and do it all over again. And that's really what they try to, uh, they try to get us in the cycle and they really want us to keep, keep us there. So um, if we're thinking differently, if we're engaging in creative thought, it, it, this, this isn't such a good thing for the, uh, the power elite. 
Now, um, as I mentioned before, the power leaders tried to erode um, these kind of practices, um, and a lot of um, modern religious practices have their basis in these, these early shamanic practices. Um, but what, what's, what's happened is they've kind of hollowed out the core of the, the ritual, and so on the surface it looks the same, but the meaning and the power of the, the rituals has, has, has been taken away um, to maintain that, to, the, to, to maintain that power. Um, now, there's, um, Anna talked about the, the more traditional practices, um, and these traditional practices have sort of morphed into and moved into a, um, a modern day um, manifestation um, in Brazil at the Santo Daime Church, which is um, an ayahuasca, a new ayahuasca um, practice. Um, the 1930s saw the rise of the Native American Church, which is a um, Native Americans. It's, uh, it's based on Haiti, and then in Africa you've got the Iboga um, cults as well. And these are all traditional practices practiced in a modern time. And so you have this this um, trajectory from from the traditional to the modern. And and whether by consciously or unconsciously, it's it, humans seek this, this psychedelic um, thinking. Uh, in the West, we've seen a rise of, of things like yoga and meditation, and then um, Salvi Divinarum, which I study, is a sort of fast-growing um, trend as well. And um, whether people know it or not, they're they're seeking out those 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 because nobody forces you to to go to yoga or or you don't sort of walk out of the store and somebody hands you salvia divinorum to smoke. Um, you have to seek out those um, those type of experiences. And we, we seek them out from a very beginning, um, uh, early childhood experiences of rolling down the hill, um, experiences of dizziness, uh, one of the very first consciousness expanding practices that we, we, we um, experiment with. And then, um, like I've mentioned, the, the yoga and the... Uh, the Salvi Divinorum. The Salvi Divinorum is, is, is different because the practice, the traditional practice and the modern pra- practice are totally separate. There, there's no similarity between, between the two. Um, and so this is really interesting for sort of like this, this new, these new rituals that, that humans create in order to make sense of their psychedelic practices. Uh, so Salvi Divinorum, short-acting uh, lucigen from the from Mexico, um, Azatecs use it have had used it since con- from contact till now. Um, they it, it entered into the in, into Western academic interest in the 60s when Watson and Hoffman brought back a botanical specimen and it was successfully uh, su- successfully identified. Um, and then sort of it was this kind of mythical third plant of the Mazatecs for for quite a number of years. In the mid-80s, two groups um, um, found the active ingredient, the active psychedelic ingredient in it, um, Salvinor and Abe. And so from there, it took another um, five or six years for them to say that, yes, this was the, the um, psychoactive property in this plant. And they, they also figured out at the same time that you could smoke this. Um, so so we're, we're into the, the early 90s right now. And so we've got the early 90s, people are starting to discover salvia, and at the same time, we've got the rise of the internet. So 
this um, this Salvi de Venorum phenomenon, um, it's not um, yeah, it's not out of the question that there's a whole bunch of videos on YouTube because this this phenomenon actually has risen with the popularity of the internet. And um, again, I'm, I'm just at the preliminary part of my data, trying, trying to turn it through. But um, what I'm seeing right now is that um, people posting on YouTube, um, they're posting outside of a ritualized context, but in posting on YouTube, they've they've started to create their own rituals, and and the internet is very um, integrated into that. So the differences between the the what the Western practices, the modern practices of Salvi de Norman, and the Mexican ones. Um, in the West, it's smoked. Um, in Mexico, it's chewed. Um, and in the West, it's mainly self-administered, um, normally with help, maybe with the help of a friend. But in Mexico, it's, it's almost always um, administered by a shamanic, so it's part of the shamanic practices. In the West, it's an experiential um, practice. So, like, I mean, people are, are using it just to experience it, whereas in Mexico, they use it for ritual. They use it for shamanic training. They use it for divination. And they also use it for some curing um, ceremonies. And then, um, of course, the, uh, the geographical differences are, are large due to the fact that um, it's only in the Oaxaca Valley that, that Salvador is found. So um, you've gone from this very <coughs> state of Mexico to a global phenomenon. So YouTube is a really interesting part of um, ethnographic and, well, and, I mean, anybody studying people right now? Um, YouTube is a huge array of cultural information. It um, it takes up about 20% of all the HTTP traffic on the World Wide Web, which which um, factors down into about 10% of all internet traffic. Now, yeah, think about having something that's 10% of all internet traffic. It's it's a pretty large and dominant cultural force right now. Um, uh, just a little so a little stat: every 10 minutes. Or sorry, every minute, 10 hours of, of video is uploaded on YouTube. So, um, and this this um, footage on YouTube, it's largely amateur. Um, there's a couple, like some of the big um, big news corporations and stuff like that, and uh, um, governments have YouTube sites, but it's largely um, people like us with a video camera with something to say. Um, so as I as I go through all of this YouTube data, um, I've spent weeks and weeks and weeks watching YouTube videos. Um, there's about 900 hits for for um, Salvia. Um, so when I started and I typed in Salvia, there's 300 hits. This was in January, and now I, I did actually did it today, and it was um, 10,500. So just in that short time. Now these are not all unique videos, but these are the hits that that YouTube is bringing up on their their, their internal search engine. So um, there's that, that's a that's Quite a, quite a change from 300 to uh, to 10,500 in seven months, right? So we're we're seeing a, a large growth in in this um, in this phenomenon. Um, the videos on YouTube highly criticized by the media, of course, and politicians. Um, a lot of uh, congressmen in the states quoting. Well, I've seen it on YouTube, and they they dig up these like one or two of the, the worst videos that possibly can. I, I classify about 85% of the, the videos that I, I watch on YouTube as, as a positive experience, um, as in that there was no physical appearance of distress um, and no verbal sort of like, help or anything like that. There are a few a few videos that, that definitely display people not having very good time, but the, the majority of them are, are positive, and, and it's really hard to tell. 
whether or not the like I, I don't know where the like people like Fox and stuff like that, of course, cruise through all these videos and put up the very worst ones. But it is it's a very small percentage. Um, so the top four videos, um, YouTube uh, again talking about this growing phenomenon. There's six million views between the top four videos on uh, Saudi and Norm videos on YouTube. So six million views is, is quite a quite a, a substantial amount of um, of attention, um, enough to warrant a, at least a, a sort of a small part of uh, of this this research. Um, so. There's a few reasons why Saudi Divnar and YouTube have found a match together. Um, Saudi Divnar is, is short-acting hallucinogen, so if you smoke it, uh, the, the better part of your experience is going to be maybe 15 minutes maximum. Um, normally it lasts about 4 to 7 minutes, so the, the YouTube time limit of 10 minutes um, fits in really nicely with that. Um, Largely in the West, it's legal to sell, possess, grow, smoke. You can eat. You can basically do whatever you want with it. Some U.S. states are slowly starting to um, make it um, illegal, and uh, Australia has also made it illegal. And I think Spain has said no. But um, largely, it's it, and it's readily available in shops, but also online as well, which adds to its its. Um, it's internet focus. So now we have the confluence of psychedelic thinking in the World Wide Web. Um, the World Wide Web, I don't think itself is a, is a mode of psychedelic thinking, but I really do believe that it has, it, it will factor in more and more into this, into both the, the spread of new ways of psychedelic thinking, but also to sort of facilitate the ritualization of, um, of new ways of psychedelic thinking. Um, so we, we have this loss on one side of, of traditional um, psychedelic thinking, but on the same side we have to make sure that we're exploring um, the new ways that we are are displaying this and um, ritualizing it. And I, I started, I, I was trying to find a sort of a title for this and all that kind of stuff, and, um, never, never actually ended up finding one, but um, sort of—it's almost like the internet's like the new oracle. Like, and, and an oracle is kind of something you have to give and take, right? You can't just ask it and expect to receive. You have to sort of um, give to the oracle as well as, as receive. So, um, more on that later. But the internet's really um, a really dominant force too, because everybody gets their say. It's—it's it's sort of this um, this new way of. Um, of, of talking to the world without having as much subversive force placed on you. Um, so print media, video, all that kind of stuff, you have to, it's all been filtered through the corporations. Whereas the internet, you've got a computer, no problem. You, you've, got, you've got a voice. And your voice can be as loud as the corporations or the governments if, if you so choose. So what do I want to take from all of this? Um, humans are adaptable. And although we have, we see that this, this loss of traditional shamanic practice, this traditional psychedelic thinking, on the same time, we have the rise of, of other types of practices. Now, if you, you talk to a lot of people and, and you watch a lot of these videos, you can easily make the assumption that, oh, these are just a bunch of kids, they're, they're smoking something new, they're getting out of their mind, 
they're not they're, 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 you can devalue their experience all you want but but if you if you look and you search there there's something in here and again at the preliminary part of my data I don't exactly have solid conclusions but but I know that there's there's more in here than than just a bunch of kids getting high um, so as, as humans face this this crisis that, that we're coming up to shortly, 100 years from now, who knows, um, where the, the power for our minds to create new new ways of, of dealing with these things, are it's, we're going to be forced to do this more and more and more. So, um, so whether it be uh, a small phenomenon like people posting videos on YouTube and slowly creating those rituals, or if it's a massive... Um, psychedelic revolution that everybody in the world turns on like it, it's it's one of the many possibilities that that might that might help us pass through this this next uh, this next hurdle in humanity um, so I think that really what I want to um, to sum up with this this whole thing is that um, there's there's traditional shamanic practices there's there's um, spiritual practices that are there all this time itself, but at the same time, as humans adapt and humans create new rituals, we we place these um, sorry, we embed these these new ways of thinking into into various types of texts. This this is one of them, and then um, the other one, Alan's going to talk to. So that's that's my bit. Thank you. I'm Cameron Adams. I am, uh, by training, a medical anthropologist, so I'm walking out on a limb here. Something totally new and a little bit more fun for me. Uh, though it does have uh, some stuff uh, that is related, and I'll talk about that at one point. Um, these are somebody else's notes. I, like Ivan, uh, have become fascinated with the internet as a, a place to study people. Uh, except for I'm a little bit more old-fashioned, a little bit stodgier in my ways, and uh, infinitely older than I am. And so, a whole seven years, I believe. And uh, But I've been looking at uh, podcasts, which has been their, uh, supported by the Internet. These are people who put up uh, talks, lectures, uh, music programs, whatnot. It's like a radio program, but you can subscribe to it, pull it down, listen to it when you want. Uh, there have been a whole bunch of them on psychedelic topics, and you can get hour-long, two-hour-long lectures on these topics, which for some reason turn me on. I can sit there and listen to a talking head for a few hours. Uh, but also forums, where you can discuss this stuff in the very old-fashioned method of print media in much more of a discursive way. Though I do not want to discount the discursive nature of YouTube, um, and I need to talk about this a little bit more. There is a dialogue there. It's not just posting a video. Now, uh, I've got a whole list of uh, uh, psychedelic podcasts uh, of various uh, sorts, from very rational uh, to very freaky, if anybody wants those. But what I'm going to focus on mostly is um, the history of uh, modern psychedelic uh, philosophy, uh, sort of a trajectory. Uh, as opposed to some uh, pretty old stuff. I and mean, we could go all the way back to Plato, who very many of his ideas uh, uh, and stylistic points could be retreated to the Eleusinian Mysteries and uh, Kaikion, which may or may not be an ergot-based uh, beverage, which would be similar to LSD. Um, 
Um, somebody has come up with a very simple way of making it non-toxic using ash, uh, so it would have been easy to do. Uh, so Plato is a little bit earlier than what I want to talk about. No, also, I'm, I'm missing some of those old guys, Thomas De Quincey, classic uh, opiometer uh, literature. William Blake is a visionary uh, poet, and Samuel Taylor Coolidge, another visionary poet. Uh, I don't want to go as far back as that. I mentioned this is a very old uh, tradition in the West, but uh, I want to start with stuff specifically related to psychedelic drugs um, and uh, what came in in the West. And I'm start arbitrarily in the 30s with Alan Watts, a very spiritual guy, uh, student or studied uh, um, comparative religion, Oxford. Um, and did a lot of very straightforward religious analysis um, until he had taken LSD and found, wow, this stuff gets me to the same place, meditation, these deep uh, methods do. And started writing about these issues and speaking about them. And uh, this began a mixing of science and spirituality at that time. It started becoming this analytic approach to the spiritual uh, experience and trying to understand it analytically and the psychedelic experience. Now this was taken up uh, much more strongly by the ever-famous Aldous Huxley, who we all know, Doors of Perception, uh, his, uh, his personal favorite and uh, novel uh, being Island, uh, which uh, has a psychedelic vision, a utopian vision of uh, a possibility. And so with these guys, you start getting in, especially with Aldous Huxley, this very science-driven idea of the psychedelic experience. And so we can take this, we can look at it, we see what it does, we get these ideas about how society should be, how we should treat, treat the raising of children uh, in a very sort of analytic way. Now, Aldous Huxley also felt that uh, psychedelics should only be reserved for the elite, the intellectual, the Illuminati, basically. I don't think we would call them such a way to use today. Um, as opposed to a sort of democratized thing. Now, much more recently, this mix of science and spirituality uh, or uh, psychedelic uh, influence has been uh, sort of culminated in the work of Dale Pendle, who's written uh, three books, Pharmacopoeia, Pharmacognosis, Pharmacodynamics, based on very uh, uh, pharmacologically driven terms uh, of, you know, from the field of pharmacology. And um, basically they take a series of uh, uh, mind-altering plants and discuss them in a very complex mix of history, chemistry, um, uh, botany, uh, poetry, experience reports, etc. mixes them all up, and you get a very rich sense of what this plant is that neither science nor pure poetry can give you. It gives you this really complex uh, uh, in, uh, insight into them. Uh, it's particularly good for people who've never done them and trying to get an idea of what they like. Uh, though he covers, he's not just psychedelic plants, uh, pharmacognosis is, pharmacodynamics is stimulus, um, and he just goes through a whole variety, and uh, if he's taken everything he's written about, he's uh, somebody who can do things that most humans can't. 
Um, but that's where you're getting this, this mixing of science and spirituality. Um, this starts in the 60s, um, going into philosophers, uh, scientists, philosophers like Timothy Leary, who's this sort of went from psychology, got into the psychedelic thing, sort of denied psychology to some degree, came back to it. Starting with him in his later work, um, uh, but also Robert Anton Wilson, who was a very stringent uh, Leary supporter, you start getting teleology in this scientific thinking. Now, uh, those of us who are embedded in science understand teleology is a dirty word, or letter word, uh, especially if you're thinking evolution. There is no goal to evolution, it just happens to you. There's a goal orientation to it. These psychedelic thinkers start thinking, or start bringing teleology into it, and this uh, culminates in Timothy Leary's ideas of smile, which is uh, SMI squared, L-E. Space migration, intelligence increase, and life extension. We are on a path towards these things. And these uh, are evidence in what he calls our eight-circuit psychedelic or psychological model. And there's various uh, aspects of the brain, four of which are currently activated, and in the left-hand side of the brain. Uh, and then there's all the right-hand side of the brain. There's four other circuits that can be activated through psychedelic plants, but there are future evolution. We're moving into them. So there's a teleological view, where eventually will be space-floating uh, cognitive entities. That escape our bodies, and, and some pretty wild stuff added to it. But that's the teleology uh, between the Eight Circuit model and the smile. Now, he says we're at stage four, halfway through. Now, Robert Anton Wilson works with Timothy Leary, or works on his ideas. I don't think they necessarily ever met, but he started in the 70s, and came up with ideas such as reality tunnels. And I think this is a very useful thing to think about in terms of psychedelic thinking. We are, reality is a very complex thing, multifaceted thing. However, our experience is traveling in a tunnel or a track through this broader reality. Uh, and uh, those of us who are called anthropologists use a nice technical word for that, ethnocentrism. We have our cultural models that we think are right, we go through them. And so this reality tunnel uh, plays into this. Um, and he starts having sort of a fight back against the scientific dominance, the dominance of scientific thinking, by coming up, Robert Anton Wilson, this is, with irrational rationalism, or as a lot of people are starting to talk about, scientism as opposed to science. The flat-out belief that science is the only way that is worthwhile of knowing the world. Uh, He's not denying science as a very, very useful way of knowing certain things about the world, but he has a problem with people thinking it's the only way. And um, he came up with the fantastic statement that Leary, or that uh, the world is stranger than we imagine, so we shouldn't believe in anything. Belief is when you deny the uh, uh, input of data, evidence. If you start believing, you don't need the evidence, and then it's something different than science. Now, this brings us essentially to a turning point in psychedelic thinking. Uh, I'd like to think of it as BT and AT. 
And that T is Terence McKenna, the ever-famous Terence McKenna. This guy uh, was so powerful of a speaker that while you're listening to him, it is very hard to think there's anything wrong with what he's saying. I've listened to, I believe, 30 hours of lectures of this guy, and every time I was sitting listening, yeah, yeah, yeah. And about a week later, I'm like, mm, that idea was a little bit weird. That doesn't hold. Um, but he's very charismatic, and he can draw you in. And he is the foundation of much of psychedelic thinking that has come since. And basically, everybody wants to be Terrence McKenna. Now that he's died, new, new team. Um, but uh, he took Robert Anton Wilson's "The World Is Stranger Than We Imagine" and uh, amplified it a bit. "The World Is Stranger Than We Can Imagine," uh, even. And so, the psychedelic drugs, in his idea, are, are uh, the only way to get beyond that. Now, what I see as this tying into the uh, Robert Anton Wilson stuff is reality tunnels. I like to think of them more as trenches or tracks. Um, the psychedelic experience, be it induced through meditation, be it induced through uh, fasting, trauma, uh, or, or using plants, lifts you out of that trench, out of that groove, in such a way that you have a better holistic view of what's going on. Now, that experience in and of itself can be quite mind-blowing and very difficult to bring back. I think a, a very good way to do it is spend more than a, a few weeks on vacation but in another culture. The anthropological experience is often designed around experiencing another culture, finally getting it, so that you can understand how arbitrary your own is and you can come up with a better analysis, social analysis of what's going on. Break down these ideas of ethnocentrism. This is a fast way, the psychedelic experience is a fast way to get up out of those groups. Now, another sort of interesting thing Terence McKenna said that I quite like is when we get out there, we're like fishermen in a sea of consciousness. And the goal is not to cast your net and catch the Leviathan that will rip your net and maybe drag you into the sea and never hear from you again. Those happen. And the goal is not to catch the tiny minnows of consciousness that make you realize, now isn't it the most amazing thing that your pinky finger fits right in your nostril? But the middle-sized fish of consciousness, there's this job to work towards bringing material back that is significant, but don't, you can't get the stuff that we simply can't handle. And from his point of view, it is a, a, a role in society that someone or individuals need to uh, become engaged with. Um, and he worked often enough with uh, a biologist, um, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who I believe some of you probably heard of, who's still doing quite interesting work, and Ralph Abraham, uh, one of the guys of chaos mathematics in what they call trialogues, which they have various discussions with each other and people would come and listen to them. Um, and I'll get to Rupert Sheldrake when I get to the sort of um, culmination here. Now, from these ideas at this point, I'm going to give a quote that I have, and it's, it's a real quote, it's a fictitious quote, uh, it's a quote of a fictitious person, of a fictitious book that's in a magazine. It's kind of psychedelic in and of itself. But it says, it is too constricting to say that you must always think outside the box. 
which is what we currently count as psychedelic thinking to some degree, corporate psychedelic thinking. Whether you are thinking inside or outside the box, you are still letting the box dictate your thoughts. Are you not? What you are not acknowledging is the honest fact that the box itself is figmentary and illusory. And as long as one continues to act in reaction to this perceived set of dictates, one cannot be truly original in thought. So once we're stuck in those grooves, even if we like want to walk on the top of the groove or the bottom of the groove, it's still going down that same path. Um, this is attributed to Erica Amelia Smith as in an address to the nature of proper uses of technology uh, in Steampunk magazine. So it's just a literature magazine. Um, and I think this is, again, this idea that getting out of any kind of groove that you find yourself in is the best way to find solutions to the current problems. Now, Terence McKenna started bringing in this teleology much more. They would come out of these grooves and they would see patterns and attribute significance to them. I think this is um, quite related to, I hope I have in here, yeah. Uh, some research actually done here at the University of Amsterdam, quite um, serendipitously, by, I, if you're here, but I don't think you are, if I mispronounce your name, please forgive me, Ah, uh, Dijkerhaus um, did a study of decision-making. And they basically said, here's a, a variety of things to make the right decision, you know, the best decision out of them. And they had half the group sat and thought about it. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it was. The other half played chess. And at the end of the time, said, okay, which one? The ones who played chess made, as a group, better decisions than the ones who cogitated on it. And the interpretation given, of course, this is interpretation, we don't know if this is what's going on, is that when you consciously approach a problem, you go down well-worn paths. The project, the choice was deciding on what kind of car, which is the best car out of this group. Well, when you're deciding what kind of car to get, what do you think? Uh, fuel economy? Is that more important than the comfort of the captain's ship? Is that more important than the color of the vehicle, the horsepower? But you make choices. You immediately make choices before assessing everything because you're trying to solve the problem. Whereas they um, suggest, or he suggests, that uh, the subconscious mind takes all the factors equally. And therefore, the color of the interior, the space of the boot or trunk, uh, are equally assessed with um, fuel economy, etc. And then uh, uh, relatively graded after the fact, as opposed to pre and uh, so, therefore, a more rational choice, more holistic decision can be made. Again, this ties into what's happening with the psychedelic experience, with looking at things outside of your groove more holistically. You can see, okay, that's an arbitrary path. It might be of interest. That might be of interest, too. And you get a very sort of everything is equal. Now, unfortunately, this can also lead to the over-assessment of the value of uh, unimportant aspects. And this is why we say the psychedelic experience is not enough. You've got to bring it back and use it on the ground. 
Now, Terence McKenna talked about the eschaton. 2012. Rick back there knows all about this. He's lived amongst the Mayans himself. In 2012, the Mayan calendar, apparently, according to some people, will end. And it's the end of the world, according to some um, and But something's going on. And Terence McKenna came up with a chaos um, sort of graph, uh, graphing of chaos patterns in um, the King Wan uh, version of the Ching, and took this and mapped it against history, found peaks and troughs, compared to what you called novelty and lack of novelty, and the whole thing collapses at 2012, if you map it to historical events. Maybe, maybe not. Of course, there's a lot of ways to do this. And so this has become a major theme in a lot of the teleological thinking among the psychedelic community. The idea is something will happen in 2012. What will happen? The vast majority of these folk, and I think idealized by Daniel Pinchback, is that this will be a good thing. 2012, something good is happening. Uh, the world will change. Society will change in such a way that um, we'll all be better for it. And uh, this basically ties into Timothy Leary's smile. Space migration, becoming beings of light, going into these higher realms of mental uh, um, functioning. And, you know, there we go. Perfect. Uh, Bruce Damer uh, talks about this as if the universe itself is becoming a conscious being, and we're only part of it. And this ties into the uh, Gaia hypothesis, Tillard the Chardin. But that as the world, universe is becoming more conscious, 2012 is when we go into a higher stage of the universal consciousness. And again, we're just part of it, so things will uh, be quite nice. And um, this seems to be a nice thread through. Eric Davis takes this in a slightly different way. Says yes, in 2012 things can be uh, pretty good. They can also be pretty bad. He doesn't really talk about 2012 so much, but this this future uh, point. And he makes the very important uh, statement that imagination is the key to what will occur to to us in the future. Imagination, and um, it's the, inter- uh, the imagination is also the, that interface between humans and the natural world. Now. As a quote here, any kind of restorative, sustainable renewal of our power, of our planet rather, has to exist on the imaginal realm as well as the realm of the technical solutions, political developments, and technological fixes. It's a multidimensional problem. And uh, by implication, that multidimensional problem requires us to be able to see outside of our two, three dimensional realm four dimensions. Uh, those of us lucky enough to be able to think in the long term have four dimensions. Um, and he takes the stance that from the psychedelic experience you get um, visionary art, but that needs to be worked with and become visionary design. And so we can use these visionary ideas, these new ways of thinking, but apply them to society. So we can't just sit around and wait for the eschaton of 2012 and things will be great. we got to do it. And we got to do it creatively because the way we're doing things right now isn't helping. It's where the problems are coming from. 
And um, he sort of goes and hassles these uh, other sort of guys uh, that see that 2012 is going to be a really good thing by saying dream, dream of a better time ahead. Is it, it, dreaming of a better time ahead is natural to the psychedelic experience. However, it's dangerous, a temptress that keeps us from being active in the change itself. So again, we need to take this psychedelic experience. We can't just look at it, assess things equally, and say, okay, things are going to go in a certain way, can go in a certain way. But we've got to take that information back. Instead, we need to bring it back, bring back the insights piece by piece to build a new world. And so this is where I'm going to stop my particular uh, bit of this talk um, and uh, leave it up to you guys and see what you guys have to say. Questions? I would actually even sort of continue what um, Kevin's saying by saying that each uh, each psychedelic experience is different. Period. Like um, like per person um, or like the individual have a variety of different types of experiences, and then you'll have a different experience than the person sitting beside you. Um, I've gone through um, uh, a number of rituals as well as as just. Um, Sort of the experiential stuff as well, and, and every time it's different. Every time things come out, and I think the the most important part of those experiences is that it's not the experience itself, but what you bring back from the experience and integrate into your daily life. Um, and I think that's so. I, I I would definitely not consider myself a lumper at all, more than a splitter. But but you, yeah, it's infinite possibilities. But it's it's taking those infinite possibilities, um, using them creatively, bringing them back. Because, I mean, we can't spend our entire existence in the psychedelic realm because it's very um, difficult to function on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's, it's a place that we go and we bring it back and, and, um, and integrate, by integrating those experiences into our daily life, but that creative, creativity and that innovation is, is going to be, is going to help, hopefully. Do you see a difference? I'm just interested by seeing. Okay. Um, do you see a difference between the effect of doing the psychedelic drugs as opposed to people who do the psychedelic experience, say meditation, in terms of how it the experience is brought back and expressed within the community? Mm, I. Yes. Uh, I mean, the short answer. Um, would be yes. There are, certainly would be certain differences. Um, having psychedelic experiences with the help of drugs um, is very. What is the word? Ergonomic. Well, it, it, you will, um, if you take the correct dosage, you will achieve a psychedelic experience. Whereas other practices, you have to work at them for a long time, and part of that working at it for a long time um, often involves living. A lifestyle um, that is more dedicated to those practices, so perhaps living a more a monastic lifestyle or a more sort of um, <laughs> lifestyle that incorporates those things. And so, certainly, like the experience you get with taking psychedelic drugs can be more disorienting, and you have uh, perhaps a more difficult time for many people reintegrating. Whereas if you're achieving them through other means and you're sort of living that lifestyle anyway, of course it's going to have an effect on, on how you interpret it and what you bring back and how you share it with other people and how you, like if you're living in a community of, um, you know, meditative 
contemplative thinkers, then you, the way you communicate with other people in the, that community is going to be different. Though. But also, you also prepare yourself for the experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah. know, nobody reaches enlightenment meditating you know, in two weeks. Um, you, you engage with yourself and you work towards it. And so whatever the experience, it builds up very slowly. And uh, you essentially, as, as a, a lot of the talk in the Kundalini community is, is you prepare your nervous system for that. And if you get there too fast, it can be harmful. And in a lot of ways, the thing can't quite often be that lightning bolt but a little bit too fast uh, for anybody to integrate. But also, by living in a, a community, or at least being aware of a meditative community, contemplative community, you have a structure with which to interpret your experience, which is in a lot of ways missing uh, uh, in the psychedelic drug uh, community, the uh, drugs in particular. I mean, a lot of people, just uh, some guy on the street, want to try some answer, yeah, sure, you know, and uh, it, there may be some uh, thinking about doing it before doing it, but there's not that sort of uh, matrix or, or milieu in which to interpret the experience. And so uh, uh, this is some of the uh, discussion about the difference between our emerging urban shamanism, uh, as some people like to talk about it, versus traditional shamanism where there's a community. Little kids see people on Evan A and, you know, with the young mom. They know the experience, they know what to expect, um, and are able to sort of surf the waves of experience that come with it because they know what to expect, they know what people come out of it. Whereas a lot of people, the first time they take these things, it might be the first time they've even seen it. And so there is a vast difference there. And Alan Watts talked about this uh, with having achieved um, what he thought was an illuminated state to some degree through meditating, and the same state through LSD. So they're very similar. Um, uh, and, and that, that uh, they are uh, of a kind to some degree. Uh, and he suggested the use of both techniques over with each other as a way of making that a more robust and useful experience. And uh, uh, but then there's been uh, ever since quite an argument between the no, you got to work at it and do the contemplation and meditate. No, no, that never gets you there. You got to take the drugs and blah blah blah. And there's this big argument between those communities, with some people saying, well, they actually can't integrate with each other. There's an argument. You know, the magazine used to call it enlightenment. Now it's called enlightenment. No, no, no. It's you know, you buy health food stores mm-hmm. and stuff in America. But there's an article about that very issue okay. in the last. Um, it should work. Yes, so I really enjoyed it. But if you're advanced, I'm taking a particular drug and which one right. versus enlightenment. Sure. Which one do you think is going to have, if, if you're talking about this in terms of um, changing world consciousness to deal with the looming crisis, mm-hmm. which one's going to have more power? The one that's being within a structure, within a community, or the people I know that have done salvia do it individually. Mm-hmm. They do it on a Saturday night at a party. Um, I don't know what you mean by ritual, but there's no ritual besides you know bringing out the bomb and stuff. But um, and I'm not against salvia in any way. It can be very powerful, so I don't mean to be derogatory in any way. But which which is going to you know? And then I think what you're saying about the six million views. So I, I guess it is getting out to a very large community. But is that community? going to be able to bring it together in a cohesive way like a shaman would do in a community. Yeah. The, um, as far as which one is better, um, I'm a yoga instructor at, or a teacher as well as have plenty of experience with um, with various psychoactive plants and, and different traditions and stuff like that. And um, they all, the, the door to perception is the same door. 
but there's just a lot of different keys that open that door. So, but it's and it's not necessarily like if if all of us did one thing in this room, it's not necessarily going to be the best or the worst. It's uh, it's really up to the individual because it's a fully it's a very individual experience. So it's up to the individual to find what works best for them. My the 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 woman that taught me how to be yoga instructor had. Um, maybe touched a drop of wine twice in her life, but other than that, like, no caffeine, no, um, no Tylenol, no nothing for her entire life. She eats fruits and vegetables, and, and that's, that's it, well, and some other things, but, um, and she's very much against the, the whole psychedelic, but very, she's an enlightened lady, and she definitely thinks in a psychedelic way. Um, and again, I've, like, I've worked with, with shamans from, from Peru, and um, they, do ayahuasca on a, re- uh, on a regular basis, and that works for them. And they have the, the same, like it's incredible, because um, the, these two experiences were, were separated by, by time and space, and um, very, very similar conversations that, that are created with those, the, those, the same people. One that has, has never done psychedelic drugs, but, and one that has, has done a lot. So it's, it's really up to the individual to pick what works best for them. And um, having experienced both kind of living in an ashram and as well as um, um, psychedelic experiences. Um, I know the key that works better for me are things like salvia um, because I find that in a meditative community um, or in those sort of groups and stuff like that, um, you don't end up with any contrast. <laughs> so you, you, you're having all these great experiences, but everybody else is having all these great experiences and there's no contrast. So um, I, I find it harder to sort of interpret and, and integrate my experiences. And also in those same um, communities, you have um, you have this very structured way of integrating. So it's 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 not allowing you to sort of develop and form your own way. It's 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 a very cultured way of, of in, in, in integrating. So sometimes you can you, I've hit walls a lot in, in my in my both my meditative and my yogic practice. Um, I've hit walls and I've, I've tried to push these walls and, and push them and, and I can't do it because it's a very structured structured way. So um, it's it's all about finding finding your own special key. Then there's people like me who find that the, the quick way doesn't really do it because I feel it's not the real thing. It doesn't work deep deep down inside. <laughs> so that 20 years of meditation will be a much more rewarding experience for me just because I had to work that way. I have that reward for effort um, type of uh, experience that that makes it the real one. And there's a lot of people just like that. You don't necessarily want to don't necessarily want to just have one experience either. Like no. the, the more the more you can um, put into yes. your into your experience, the better. Personally, for me, it, um, the main thing is anthropology. Like I grew up among anthropologists and psychedelic thinkers who used a lot of psychedelic drugs and. Um, experiment a little bit myself, but it, it was really just sort of growing up within the mainstream American culture, but outside of it as well. And um, really through, I mean, the way I do it mostly is I teach anthropology to students and like try to get them to think outside of their groove or reality tunnel or, or whatever, and basically cracking open their minds through through teaching anthropology and encouraging to go out and live with other people and things like that. So, I mean, it really... It, it, the forms are almost infinite. Um, but I think the main thing is to, to step out of the reality tunnels that we're on, particularly coming as an American coming from the, this whole corporate um, 
overconsumption, um, uncontrolled growth, manifest destiny, we're going to the moon, and, and all of that, I, I think, is uh, what keeps me up at night. So. Yeah, but some of these guys can't go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's different. It's different. Going to the moon without rocket ships, whatever. But you know, like, <laughs> basically taking all the resources of the Earth to build big rocket ships. Like this. Did, did you? Yeah, I just wanted to ask guys about with something I'm a PhD researcher, but I'm doing a part-time PhD at the university, and I'm a secondary school teacher, so you know, I've come into contact with people using Salmonary in lots of different ways, including mm-hmm. myself. Do you not think that, um, I mean, I think part of what I picked up from all the presentations was that psychedelic thinking is like an answer to, or a possible answer to, mm-hmm. things like commodification and consumption, but do you not see that it might not be possible to argue that the current research, the current widespread use of salvia and appearance on the internet, and the fact that you can just go online and buy it, represents the fact that it's tends to commodify psychedelic experience in the world. Absolutely, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Lost the tourism, yeah. So. yeah, and we're, yeah, we're talking about um, drug tourism, just like the like going to see the shamans and stuff like that, and there's, def- there's always a... Um, there, there's there's always that part of it for sure, but um, the interesting part about salvia is that that you buy it and, and it's it's commodified and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and then you take it, mm-hmm. and even though you're participating in a in a um, and it's much the same way with drug tourism, um, you you engage in that consumer behavior, but then as a result you end up with the possibility of having sort of a new mode of thought at the end. Um, <clears throat> I can tell you that um, after watching hundreds of these videos and talking to people and all this kind of stuff, um, that not every like that that video that I showed you was a very special video. Like that that was like and it sort of encompasses everything that I um, hadn't expected to find, but was glad to. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of kids that are they, they buy it and and because their friends did and they saw it on YouTube, they they, they just want to try it out and, and all that kind of stuff. And whether that, those experiences become Useful at the end of the day, or if they're just they're just a drop in the bucket in the whole whole realm of their existence, and they never they never think about it again. Um, but I mean, the the potential to to spark um, a new a new ways. But the the, the commodification of, of those kind of like of smart drugs um, is a whole other subject. Um, <laughs> fascinating, but um, at, at the moment it's outside of. What I'm, what I'm researching and stuff like that, but I do agree with you. I actually agree with both, like both the drug tourism and the commodification of all these things are, are, are a problem. Yeah, so I mean, it's, um, but the answer is never really, it's not a black and white kind of thing. Yeah, so, interesting. The, uh, I was going to mention just sort of uh, in passing that this uh, commodification of going into this stuff. Uh, and what can happen? Um, it, it, they can be used in very specific ways, and uh, I think you know uh, if you approach something with a particular goal, you're going to probably find a way to achieve that goal. And so, if somebody uh, um, uh, evil world take the world over type of control person, it's not going to suddenly become an ecologist after some sort of heavy experience. You know, they might find a way to screw people over even worse. Yeah. Um, and so it's a matter of the way you apply these things. And I was talking about these reality tunnels 
you know, popping up and seeing things holistically doesn't make it nice. Um, but if applied in certain ways, now Myron Solaroff in the uh, 60s and um, uh, um, James Fadiman used mescaline as well, uh, roughly at the same time, to study uh, goal-oriented use of these things. And uh, uh, this one with LSD was about creativity, kind of increased creativity, which everybody agreed, yeah, sure, okay, all the artists are taking it, blah, blah, blah. The mescaline one was a lot more interesting because they said, okay, um, try to solve a problem. And they had a physicist, an architect, um, a bunch of other people said, solve a problem. And it was used basically to make money. Uh, and so this can be done as well. Uh, the insights can be commodified as opposed as well as the experience. And so one of the physicists apparently was one of the guys who figured out how to get particles to go around a curve in one of these particle accelerators through this mess of thing. Now we have CERN, uh, 40 years, 50 years later. Uh, what's that, Craig? No, that wasn't Crick. Well, Crick also yeah. uh, apparently figured out uh, DNA while he was taking LSD. Um, he's admitted it eventually. Um, and uh, the architect just saw the building in his mind uh, completely with all the bolts and everything, the type of bolts, and drew it up and built it, sold the house. You know? <laughs> so this can be used for that type of stuff as yeah. well. So uh, it's not simply the psychedelic experience, but that type of being able to come up above gives you infinite amount of options where you only have, say, 50 um, or whatever. It's, it's a way to get out of the same sorts of... Uh, the, the technologies that we use that got us to this point aren't going to get us back out of it. And so people who apply it to that task are the ones who will be able to use psychedelic thinking in such a way to get us out of it. Um, you know, uh, Bill Gates will just figure out how to make a better computer system. That's what he knows. That's what he you know, lives. And if he has a transcendent experience, it's all going to come in from his experience computerized. You know? And a lot of these computer guys did, apparently, take um, yeah. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, all them. I don't know if Bill Gates is Bill Gates now. But, um, yeah, all the Macintosh guys admitted it. Um, so. um, but you get sort of... And they have a far superior product. So. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also little, little evidence of psychedelic thinking out there. I don't know if any of you know about the free cycle which is an anti-capitalist or sort of pseudo-anti-capitalist. If you don't want something anymore, you tell them, and somebody else says, yeah, I'll take it, I'll repair it, or, you know. They come and they take it away. They come and take your stuff away, but it's being used. It's not just going in the landfill. And uh, it's a really quite radical idea. Give away your stuff, and somebody else might give you something they don't want any longer, um, and it becomes this network. And we've participated quite a bit. We've gotten a few things that uh, I wanted, and I've gotten rid of far more things than we want. Stuff you should know from American outlet appliances in the UK. They're useless. I mean, you have to go in and completely rewire them. People want them. Um, and, but I, I find that a very psychedelic thing, whether or not it was involved in any kind of drug use thing. And I, I don't want to, uh, and I don't think any of us want to actually make it sound like we are advocating particularly going out and finding salvia or going out and finding mushrooms and taking it. There are different routes to a psychedelic perspective. And again, it's taking back these weird ideas we have dreams, you know, whatnot, are ways of bringing this stuff back. I think, you know, personally, my, is not, again, not to advocate these things, but just to take them seriously. Yeah. And, and, you know, as academics or whatever our careers are and whatever our work is, is to take it seriously and to really listen and to think about it and, you know, tell people about it, write about it, and uh, things like that. I've certainly seen a lot of evidence of, of 15, 16-year-old kids that shouldn't be doing 
this mm. at, the, at the particular time. Like, and um, in a traditional context, when Sally is used, the shaman acts to, to put it, put people through the ritual, but the most important part is that they help interpret the ritual. Mm-hmm. So they bring them out, but they, and, and that's, I think that's what the, the real lack of um, sort of knowledge base that we're, we're missing is because people are seeking out these psychedelic experiences um, just as part of our natural human sort of like inquiry, but then we don't have the sanctioned teachers anymore to help us do something like it. As the guy who started our video said, um, he wrote a book called The Genesis Generation. And so basically, we are the Genesis Generation. We're the beginning. These kids screwing up on YouTube, doing even the dumbest things, are possibly the shamans of the next generation. And they're going through and making the mistakes so that others don't have to. Um, and this may be something that's emerging urban uh, modern shamanism. It, it may be happening through these phenomena. Especially, I think, Salvi is very important being short acting as well. Who these days has 12 hours to give up to self-exploration? Uh, 15 minutes is sure attractive. And it may be uh, an issue with the timing of, of uh, how these things are coming in, that that actually fits our culture much better than LSD does now. Yeah. And why not just that it fits on the YouTube video, but the YouTube videos are also 10 minutes long because that's something about the way we think about things. People don't want to put up with more than 10 minutes of stuff. Well, I think it's great that you guys are doing this research because I think a lot of us who are experimenting with these things feel very isolated. Mm-hmm. And the more it becomes like um, academically legitimized or whatever, the more people will be willing to talk about it and not keep it. Hope so. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I, I know myself. I do I don't talk about. It yeah. I, I exactly what you're saying earlier. Because people just think you're wacky. Yeah. So you keep yeah. things very hidden, and then you feel very isolated. And what you're doing is kind of a relief to find that there's a There is a thread of the psychedelic community that thinks we've over-scientized it and ruined it. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, first of all, uh, let me say that I sure hope Cameron's terminology catches on among anthropologists, uh, where he classifies events as BT and AT, before Terrence and after Terrence. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for that, Cameron. You and uh, your associates, by the way, have uh, restored my faith in academia. And may your shining examples encourage more young professionals to become involved in studying the extremely broad field that the word psychedelics encompasses. Near the end there, I think it was Cameron who said, there are different routes to a psychedelic perspective. And that, I think, hits the nail on the head. You might be surprised at how many of our fellow saloners have never taken a psychedelic and who have no intention of ever doing so. Their interest is uh, mainly in hearing about these great ideas that often arise out of the psychedelic experience. And I'm sure that these new thoughts, in fact, uh, even cause a form of psychedelic experience when first heard by many people. For me, psychedelic thinking is about even forgetting that there is a box to think out of. And uh, don't you think that this young group of psychedelic thinkers did an excellent job of getting their audience out of their academic grooves and push us all a little further along in our experience of this life. Like you, I suspect, I sure would have liked to have been there and to have added my comments at the end when the discussion began. There was a whole range of issues raised there that uh, I'm sure we could have talked about well into the night. 
In particular, I'm uh, fascinated by their investigations into the current evolution of psychedelic practices, or rituals, if you will, that have uh, little or no connection to the more ancient rituals involving these plants. And I'm in agreement with the general idea that while the ancient forms are being recognized and honored, they all had evolved long before the world's human population was anywhere near the size it is today, and before we were all so interconnected by this thing we call the Internet. Even just 50 years ago, uh, news of our sacred medicines and how to use them was almost impossible to find. Yet today we see people using psychoactive substances on YouTube. There simply is no precedent for the times we're living in. So you'd better strap yourself in and get ready for even more acceleration. At least in our level of discourse, for sure. And uh, speaking about a high level of discourse, uh, that is exactly what I found at the Slon or couch surfing tour or whatever you want to call it that KMO and Neil Kramer have been conducting up and down the West Coast here. And once I get back up to speed again, I'll try to uh, organize my thinking a little better about what Neil and KMO have begun and how maybe we can all begin participating in these live gatherings with uh, out leaving our own hometowns. So uh, stay tuned, and uh, if you've got some ideas of your own on this, I'd love to hear about them. But before I forget it, uh, in this presentation, uh, we just heard Cameron Adams speaking about the importance of Aldous Huxley's later work as uh, regards the topic of psychedelics, and I completely agree with him on this. Uh, what I would like to comment on, however, is the fact that uh, just like you and me, Aldous didn't come to his first psychedelic experience in a vacuum. He had, in fact, uh, already had well over 50 years of life experience before uh, his first use of a psychedelic substance. And so once again, uh, if you have an interest in Huxley or uh, the very early 20th century mindset about the use of psychedelics, I highly recommend Sybil Bedford's uh, brilliant biography of Aldous. Uh, it's just not to be missed, in my opinion. And one last comment about the talk we just heard is that uh, the recording that Cameron sent me uh, on it, there was also another half hour or so of Q&A that included some rather uh, critical comments that I decided to delete. And not because they didn't pose interesting questions, but because the people making some long-winded comments, uh, at least to me, seemed quite ill-informed. For example, one person, uh, an older anthropologist it sounded like, was so out of date about indigenous Amazonian people that she equated ayahuasca shamanism with witchcraft. Uh, need I say more? <laughs> Well, once again, I find myself with uh, more notes, emails, and uh, things to say than I have time for, since uh, today's podcast is already overly long, I'm afraid. So I'll once again move these notes to uh, next week's program and uh, get to the post-production processes and uh, get this online before the weekend. So uh, again, I'll close this podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can listen to my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that is downloadable at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.